Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Tiger by William Blake, first published in 1794 in his collection, Songs of Experience. And uh, this is uh, the most anthologized poem in English, I'm told, by the Wikipedia entry, most reinterpreted and rearranged work by Blake, and uh, a pretty amazing poem. It inspired at least uh, one science fiction novel and its its title in the UK, the uh, Tiger Tiger is the name of it, and it's also called uh, The Stars My Destination. Um, Eric, you've been working on a book that has a section on the tiger. Would you care to read that for us? Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the invitation, and I will take you up on it. Uh, the book is on it's the visual aspects of language, uh, arguing that in fact, language isn't just what we hear or even what we see in text, uh, but in fact, language is much, much broader than that. We, it's a two-channel system at, at the least, although we can make do without one or the other. Sign language on the one hand, ha ha ha, and uh, text only on the other. Uh, earlier in the book, I discuss how we can get visual rhythms uh, so what I'd like to do, uh, since you allow me to, Jesse, uh, I know it's not as spontaneous as our discussion. I'd like to read uh, a bit, uh, which makes reference to uh, one of the versions of the tiger. I will remind your our listeners that uh, the redoing that Blake did was primarily in the etching on which he presented the work. Mm -hmm. It's not revision of the words. It's revision of the image that the words are among. And it's good that you've posted that image so that people may take a look at the one that we're talking about. So I'll begin to read my, my draft. The book is not out yet. If we can use equivalent terms to discuss the rhythmic effects, both conscious and unconscious, of both literature and painting, we ought to be able to find rhythms collaborating effectively in multimedia works. And this is true. The analysis of any good modern graphic novel will make this clear. One feels how sword fights fly across the swiftly turning pages in Japanese manga, like Osama Tezuka's Buddha, while often dense Anglo-American works like Moore and Gibbons's Watchmen repeatedly force us to read and reread words and images. All expert filmmakers understand this, working as they do with words and images, and William Blake understood this too. The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand and what the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, 
what dread hand and what dread feet what the hammer what the chain and what furnace was thy brain what the anvil what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears did he smile his work to see did he who made the lamb make thee tiger tiger burning bright in the forests of the night what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry yeah when you look at the poem um, on the page you'll see branches going across from a tree that goes up the upper right the tiger is standing in the foreground on the ground and above is the sky and those branches come off the tree and separate the the stanzas let me return to my draft then in the tiger the horizontal branches of the tree separate the poems six four-line stanzas into groups of one two two and one the famous first and last vary only by one word and one punctuation mark which are found in their last lines what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry and what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry in switching from could to dare and removing even the brief pause represented by a comma at the end of the third line of the first stanza the poet is moving from thinking of the making to feeling the making the overwhelming feeling nearly shatters him this near repetition marks makes the stone stony that's a reference to uh, Shklovsky's idea that art defamiliarizes on the page as Blake printed his etching the title is in the intellectual blue sky and the dare is just above the etched tiger's head we have gone from thinking to feeling from the heavens to the earth from the eternal to the fatal the fearful symmetry may be in the body of the supreme hunting animal but there are other symmetries as well including the grouping of the stanzas just as the first and last exist in a relation to each other the first pair focusing on the maker and the second pair focusing at first on the maker's tools form a parallel relation both the relations go from the conceptual to the actual these groupings are emphasized by the tree limbs but the tree is more than a frame this is not eden there is no fruit unless we count the tiger the tree trunk as the eye comes toward its base becomes more gnarled the bark stressed into parallel lines that we see either as echoes or progenitors of the tiger's pelt the pelt indeed may be why blake chose a tiger at all in the king james version of the bible isaiah 11:6 speaks of predator and prey cohabiting peaceably the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them in a christian prefigurative reading of the prophet the lamb who dwells with the wolf is the one is one with the little child who shall lead them two embodiments of the triune god 
This verse, which is seen as a remembrance of Eden and a promise of a return to it, mentions wolf, leopard, and lion, but no tiger. Why then would Blake, in this poem that foregrounds the difference between its eponymous predator and the lamb, use a tiger rather than the more obvious wolf? For its stripes? For the vertical visual rhythm they present, like a 90-degree twisted version of the horizontal stripes in the tree and its branches and in the lines of each quatrain? This poem is, in part, about pattern, a pattern that Blake does not see as approaching a messianic breach initiating a subsequent return to Eden, but as recurring verbally and visually in many ways and always ending with an incredulous question— Is this really his world, dominated by the beast? How can we imagine we could escape this world that begins with the same word, tiger, three times, once in the title and immediately as the first two words of the first line? This is not a pattern that can be broken. As we go from blue to the tawny earth, through the poem from sky to animal, the upward-reaching tree goes from tawny to blue. There is a contrapuntal rhythm here of the eye going down the text and up the tree, of the eye going down the tree and with the quick periodless move from could to dare up the text. Yes, tigers are fierce, but their makers are fiercer. Just before the last stanza, which is also just before the blue sky gives way to the tawny earth, the poet asks, did he who make the lamb make thee? Could a being as fierce as a tiger maker be as compassionate as God the Father? In the late 18th century, with the Industrial Revolution destroying children without redemption, as in Blake's The Chimney Sweeper, one cannot help but doubt the look of Blake's tiger's face is not ferocious, but doubtful. God is most powerful, but the tree is bare and the times are grim. We come to understand this through a complex reading that exploits rhythmic effects produced by the interwoven rhythms of the verbal and the visual. Now, of course, Jesse, this what I've just read from my draft is focusing on the rhythm and how mm-hmm. that deals with uh, co- a conveyance of a certain thematic view. Uh, There's much, much more to be said about the poem, of course, but um, as well as inviting you to do that, uh, I'm also open at the draft stage for uh, comment or criticism about what I've said so far, as well as what you may add. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with, with anything you've said. Uh, uh, This is why I like doing the show with you because we, we approach things so differently, right? You, you, you always surprise me. That's how I found out about you. You always surprise me because you're looking at things differently than I do. I always look at them as like, what is going on? <laughs> I'm always trying to figure out what's going on. And the tiger is a poem that's is very enigmatic. It it throws down, you know, all the sort of things that I like, which is you know, beautiful poetic devices and amazing imagery. But I don't know what it means, and I'm a, I always come up with theories to explain what's going on. So. The structure that you lay out and the the patterns and and the notation of the patterns is what gives it that resonance. But uh, only thing I would say is is what does it mean, Eric? What does it all mean? <laughs> and uh, I, I think of it as 
I mean, I, I, you you mentioned it um, maybe before the show started, uh, and it's in the poem, the lamb. Um, now I didn't go deep into the lamb because uh, although I know of its existence and I've read the poem, it doesn't blow me away the way this one does. Um, because I think the lamb uh, is it's kind of easier to understand. Uh, <laughs> but the tiger has the lamb within it. And that is very important. The, the fact that he is not capitalized throughout this poem, but the lamb is, is kind of interesting. If, if he is God, um, it should be capitalized. But maybe we don't need to go that deep. We could just say, we don't know who we're talking about here, but this the imagery that comes up in in the structure is what blows me away because this is not the way biology works, right? This is a question about this is a question about who made the tiger, and the making of the tiger here is very mechanical, very um, forging. It's like a blacksmith. It's a building a, a robot of, of death. Um, and That's a great line. It is. It's it's just an amazing poem for examining a real issue, and I think one that everybody has to deal with at some point, and that's the problem of evil. And when we think about tigers, we probably don't think of them as evil, but certainly when once, you know, after you in the forest of the night or of the day, you're not going to think too well upon it. And you might question why a merciful God who wants the best for everybody is allowing you to be eaten by this killing machine. And the lamb is, you know, it's easy to understand. It's, it's, it's God's representative of, of peace and, and uh, you know, the pastoral. But the tiger... And the lamb are intertwined in this poem. And there's a kind of a meta-narrative. One of the things you didn't mention in your your writing was the frame around the poem itself. This is something I, I wanted to include in the PDF version, which you can see there. We've got the page number at the very top, 42. Yes. Then there's a frame, and then there's the the watercoloring and the etching and the text and the intertwining of the the leaves of the plant on the left going up to the tiger title on the right there's the tree with the in this version a muted version of the face with it almost looks like an, a closed eye in some versions the eyes are more open or the eye is more open um and another thing you didn't note that i just noted in in listening to you and then looking at the image, in that blue sky, just under the word the, there's a bird that is never mentioned in the poem. So when I start looking at it as a visual image, not just the text, and this is why you and I are so, such good friends, is because we both believe that imagery and text need to be looked at. You can't just strip away especially with a guy like William Blake, you can't just strip away the text and type it up and present it to people. Not when somebody so obsessed with image 
and and framing uh like blake has you know going back and going back and trying to get it get it another image out of that text has so carefully added such tiny little details so i want to point to i'll just go through line by line if you don't mind um or stanza by stanza tiger tiger burning bright in the forest of the night what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful i want to say symmetry and of course that's not how you pronounce the word symmetry but to force the rhyme there throws me off and that is wonderful and it of course comes back again at the end in what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes on what wings dare he aspire what the hand dare seize the the fire now this is fascinating because it makes me wonder who's in this story we've got a narrator who's telling this story and more importantly asking a series of questions and not getting any response but continuing the questioning the deeps and the skies they're kind of the same thing the deeps of the ocean the depth of the skies the deeps of space where you might see actual burning fires of stars which come up again later in the story and the depths of hell burnt the fire of thine eyes well as far as i know tigers don't actually live in deep space and they don't live at the bottom of the sea but they do live in forests and i'm sure when you're sitting around a campfire and you're worried about being eaten in the burmese jungle you're going to be afraid uh, oh sorry bengal jungle you're going to be afraid of you know the eyes out there reflecting the light of your fire but i think what's actually going on here is the conception and the in the creation of the tiger the conception of that burning that horror that lust for killing is kind of created as a thought and then placed in this beast the next stanza down and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart and what thy heart and when thy heart began to beat what dread hand and what dread feet so at this point i'm usually flummoxed and think well tigers don't have hands they only have feet and then i realize of course that this is these dread hands and dread feet do not necessarily have to refer to the tigers but rather the creator of the tiger and that tension between who is being talked about comes up again and again what the hammer what the chain in what furnace was thy brain what the anvil what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp tigers again not made in furnaces not made their brains not made in furnaces but the fire that burns within the tiger that the lamb very much lacks that's power that's a powerful image and then the most astounding stanza the one that makes me think that this is as high as poetry can get when the stars threw down their spheres and watered heaven with their tears what does this mean 
What does it mean? Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? I go back up to the beginning. Could frame thy fearful symmetry or symmetry. Well, we've got two poems. One's called The Tiger and the other's called The Lamb. Both of them have frames around them. And both of them are made by William Blake. So he's taking two real-world creatures, and that word, creature, means created, and thinking, well, let's look at these. And then he frames them inside a frame and says, look at this. And then he compares them to each other within that frame. He's doing literally God's work for him in a certain sense, a very minor version and an imperfected version. He has to go back again and again to re change the image just slightly because, well, I like it. I want to look at this again. I want to, I like the words, but I, I want to look at this again and reframing it and reframing it. And that's how I feel when I read this poem is that the, the words themselves don't tell you what's going on. We have to do a lot of the work. Nowhere in it does it talk about the danger of the tiger other than what's what it says. It doesn't say that the tiger's going to eat the lamb, but we all know that. This is an amazing poem for reflection. And in that frame with this picture... You can see why it's one of the most anthologized poems ever. Oh, yes. I, I, I love the passion with which you, uh, you work through your responses to these things. I, I, I understand what you're saying, I believe, and I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I'd like to extend a couple of your insights. Uh, one has to do with that, that phrase, uh, a robot of death. Mm -hmm. uh, the the confusion that you feel at first, you report feeling at first, you know, tigers don't have hands. Um, and then, oh, well, this could be about the maker, not the maid. Um, this notion that the that the the creator also has a projection into a mortal creature. This is in perfect keeping with the Christian story. Mm -hmm. Um, so what Blake is doing here is turning the triune God into a God that would actually create a predator, one that will destroy the lamb rather than lying down with the lamb. Mm -hmm. the, the poem that you, I too, by the way, find uh, much less interesting because in a way too simple, uh, the lamb appears in a collection called Songs of Innocence by Blake. Then he publishes Songs of Experience, and then he publishes them together as Songs of Innocence and Experience. So the lamb, little lamb who made thee, it's following, or actually it comes first historically in, in Blake's creations. Um, you know, little lamb who made thee, it's about What's the relationship between the maker and the maid, just as is the tiger? 
Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I, a child, and thou a lamb. We are called by the same name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. And there we can see a little bit about um, of Blake's irony because God is saying, you know, he's saying, God bless yourself. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, already in the Songs of Innocence, the speaker understands that there is something fundamentally flawed in standard Christianity. But but he's in innocence. The, the creature themselves are is, is without stain. Whereas in the tiger, no. Now we have been experienced. Innocence means without stain. Mm-hmm. Now we have tested things. That's what experience means, having put to the test. So what has put us to the test? Well, many things potentially, but one of them is, I think, um, the Industrial Revolution, as I said, and as I think is echoed in your phrase, the, uh, the robot of death. Now, there are two different poems called The Chimney Sweeper. Both of them have to do with little children being chewed up and eaten by the, uh, the Industrial Revolution. Remember a little chimney sweeps were children because they were small enough to go up and gather the ashes. And here's one of those two poems, a little black thing among the snow. So the white and black imagery here as it was in the lamb. And of course, we'll get back to those stars in a second, weeping, a little black thing among the snow, crying, weep, weep in tones of woe. Where are they, father, thy father and mother? Say, They are both gone up to the church to pray because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter snow. They clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise the God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. Clearly, Blake is directing anger, not just at the Christian story, but a world defined by Christianity. God has his priest, his king. In England, the king is, in fact, the head of the church. Uh, And in the tiger, we see this, this notion, and I would take it as one, a humanistic notion, how how could anyone create a world like this? Mm-hmm. What immortal hand or eye, even if you are immortal, dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Right? And the symmetry is not really symmetrical, at least not for 21st century readers, because the sound of eye and symmetry don't rhyme. Mm-hmm. Right? The symmetry is a false symmetry. It's only an image of a symmetry. The real symmetry is we are born and we die and there we've come into a world where if there is a god he could have made things better but he did not um this poem is a terrific poem to read on its own 
but I think that it also gains when read as the as the counterweight to the foolish song of innocence and as seen as a general myth for the more specific attack on the industrial revolution and England in the, the in the 18th century. Um, it is both historically spe- specific, it seems to me, and hugely resonant, which is why, as you remind us, it gets anthologized again and again. Because, frankly, um, with a poem like this, there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.